Well, today we conclude our extended look and celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the implications of the resurrection of Christ. We've lingered here, and certainly it is not the end because every Sunday we gather, we gather in the light of the resurrection. The reason we worship on Sunday and not Saturday is because of the resurrection. So every Sunday is resurrection day. But we've taken a few particular weeks to reflect upon the resurrection of Christ and its implications for us. And today, we come to the final uh, picture, if you will, of the resurrection, and that is our full participation in the resurrection of Christ in our bodily resurrection. We've thought about what it means to live in the present in the victory of Christ, the fact that he has defeated death, that he's been raised to new life, the hope that it brings and all of that reality, which is wonderful, but here we kind of, we not kind of, we get a look at the picture of the end, and that is meant to bolster our hope now in our travails, in our sufferings, in our afflictions, and even to temper our celebrations in this life. The best thing you'll celebrate this year, the best thing you'll celebrate in this lifetime is nothing compared to what you will celebrate. And so the, the, the truth of the resurrection, I think, helps us in this present moment, one, to temper our despair, say, hey, I don't care how bad it is, that's what's coming, and to temper our celebrations, I don't care how good it is, it's nothing compared to that. So be careful of despair, and on the other hand, fastening yourself to this world and to the joys it offers, because they really are tempting. But they're only tempting, and the, the power of the temptation is there because we lower our eyes and we view them and compare them compared to other earthly things. That's a huge mistake. Huge mistake. We want to lift our eyes to see what the Lord has for us, and that puts all things, the fleeting pleasures of this world, though they're pleasures and they're gifts, uh, but we see them for what they are. They're fleeting. They should never own my heart in light of this. So that's the joy we get by getting this glimpse of the end. Now, this glimpse of the end is given to us in Revelation, which makes it challenging. Many, many Christians avoid the book of Revelation because it's complex. It is very challenging. Uh, or others dive headlong into it, but with blindness and ignorance and develop all kinds of schemes and systems for the end of the world. And that's, that, frankly, what keeps a lot of people out of it. Is they're like, oh man, if that's what Revelation means, I don't know, I can't make sense of that. We don't want to do either of those things. I have become convinced, again, if you've been at Affirmation for a while, then you know I've preached through the book of Revelation. I've taught on, I by no means consider myself an expert on Revelation, uh, but I am a lover of the book. And I've taught on it several times for the study center up at Dwarf Hill. And I am just convinced that to avoid the book of Revelation is a huge mistake. It is, it is meant to form and to shape our vision of the kingdom and our vision of our life, but it does take effort. <clears throat> and it takes proper perspective. But the proper perspective is not simply like a deep theological education, like you've got to go to seminary to get the understanding. It doesn't take some mystical understanding of things, timelines and ideas. It just requires the hard work of reading the Bible. The lens by which you interpret revelation is not some secret knowledge it is simply the bible to understand revelation you've got to understand 
the Old Testament. You've got to understand Ezekiel. You've got to understand Daniel. You've got to understand Exodus. And when I say understand, you just have to have that as the lenses. If I take these off, I'm going to have a hard time reading this. I could fight my way through it, but I'm going to have a hard time now. I'm, I'm old. That's the reality. But when I put these on, <clears throat> I have a lens that kind of brings things into focus. And Revelation requires proper lenses. But the lenses that you should have for Revelation are not, again, some hidden things or mystical things. It's simply the Bible. It's the Old Testament. Put on the Old Testament, and then so many of the images in Revelation make sense. If you don't come with the Old Testament in your mind, then Revelation really becomes something we can't figure out. We're trying to decode something. <coughs> the illustration I've used in the past when talking about Revelation is if I talk to one of my Chinese students, who have zero knowledge of baseball, and I start throwing out baseball metaphors. If I tell one of my students, hey man, you know he does, he does great on a test, and I say to him, hey man, you really knocked that out of the park, okay? And he tries, now let's, let's make that in the metaphor, that's Revelation, that's John speaking in Revelation, he's, giving a, a, he's, he's speaking symbolically, metaphorically. You knocked that out of the park, and he thinks, wow, what does Bill mean by that? Sounds like there's some deep meaning in it park has something to do with a park and and what is knocking it like hey, what, what happened what did i knock out of a park you know why would you knock something out of a park you know it's like and you if you don't have baseball if you don't understand baseball you know or hey man that's your third strike third strike what's that even mean and if, if you try to like conjure up something about what a third strike could mean or or what knocking out of a park would mean and you come up with some elaborate understanding of what this metaphor is without knowing baseball you're going to be way off the path to know those metaphors, you have to have some knowledge of baseball. To understand Revelation, you have to have a knowledge of Scripture. You, you real, the, the images that John is drawing from are just from the Old Testament. That's very important going in. Also, secondly, and I don't want to make this a sermon on Revelation. I want to make it on the text, but there's just some basic things you've got to know. Another very important thing to understand is that Revelation is, in fact, a vision. It's a vision. And as one pastor said... Uh, uh, down in Maryland, who I really appreciate very much, said the difference between a, 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 to understand a vision is to understand that a vision is not a photograph. A photograph kind of tells you what is. There it is in front of you. But a vision is meant to be interpreted. It's to tell you the reality about what is. So if, if we have an emperor who looks so neat and clean in his suit or his robes, his throne, his crown looks so majestic and awesome and honorable, but John comes along and says he's a beast with seven horns. He's not giving you, <clears throat> he's not giving you a photograph of an emperor or of the Roman Empire. He's giving you a vision. As Mark said, we get a chance to look behind the veil, picking up on a metaphor we used when we went through Revelation, that Revelation, a vision kind of peels back the veil. It rips open reality and lets you see it for what it really is. The emperors of this world would look so dignified, you kind of peel back, and John says, yeah, but here's what they really are. You look at a church that looks bedraggled. You look at a church that's like us, small and quirky, and you say, these people are going to change the world? And the book of Revelation just peels it back, and it says, no, it's an army of 144,000 dressed in white robes, following the Lamb wherever he goes, singing. I mean, you know, it just presents this awesome image of the church as a bride, beautifully adorned. It says, don't, don't let this, this click, click, there's your photograph. We have one out there. Look at, look at affirmation. 
Not very impressive, no offense. I'm in the picture too, so. But, but, oh, look at John's vision of affirmation. Awesome, awesome. You were a mighty army. But where do you go for your understanding of things? Do you trust your eyes or do you trust God's revelation? Do you trust what the culture tells you or do you trust what God tells you? And what's so awesome about Revelation is he's giving you a vision, not a photograph. Don't get lost with, well, when is a beast going to come out of the sea? And when is, the, when is this going to be poured out of heaven? And when is there going to be big hailstones that are 100 pounds? I mean, don't, you, big mistake. Revelation is absolutely true, just like poetry is true. It speaks in metaphors, symbols, and visions, but they are true. They are telling us reality. And what reality is, even beyond our senses, and what it appears to us. So Revelation is giving us the grand vision of the story that we are in, that we are in, and it's awesome. By the time we get to Revelation 20, we're at the end, obviously. It's only 22 chapters. But the end has been dragged out, just like we've been doing with the study of the resurrection. It's being told again and again and again. In fact, again, we're getting in, we can deal with this in Sunday school how we understand the book of Revelation, but that this story has been told in Revelation several times. It kind of cycles back on itself, like a spiral. We're climbing, but we're telling the story again and again and again and again. That's how you read Revelation. It's not, it's not linear. Like you start in Revelation 4 with the vision, and then it moves linearly down to 22. It does not. It tells the same story again and again and again, but each time from a little different perspective, a little different perspective, a little different perspective. And now we're to the last of these visions as we're coming in Revelation 20. And what's the context in this vision? Well, we're at the end, the great battle, but it's being dragged out. We've already seen God go to war against the unholy trinity that John sets up for us in contrast to the holy trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's an unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the harlot. And John has presented them as sort of the anti-trinity. There's no rivalry here, but they're in stark opposition. Revelation is a book of absolute contrast. There is no gray in Revelation. There is contrast. There is the one seated on the throne, or there's the dragon. There's the lamb, and there's the beast. There's the false prophet, and there's the Holy Spirit. Okay, there's stark contrast. There's the harlot. And there's the bride. There's light and there's darkness. There's life and there's death. There is no gray area. I love this about Revelation. It's so stark. It just cuts through all of our nuances. It says, no, like Jesus, you're either for me or against me, period. You're either with the beast or you're the lamb, one or the other. Somebody's name is on you. Either the beast's number is tattooed on your forehead, 666. No, that's not a chip being put in your hand someday. That's just you identify with the beast. Or the name of the lamb is on you. He's yours. You're his. But it's, you are either with the beast or the lamb. You either follow the, the dragon or the father. It's one or the other. And the lamb now is making war Against, we're at the end of the vision, and this is giving us an end of the timeline, right? Forget trying to work out all the little events and how they're going to go. Here's what we know. At the end, 
Christ comes and he puts all of his enemies down. And he delivers his church into everlasting glory. Now John has been, and you can go back and read it. You can go back and listen to the sermons if you want. They're up there on Revelation. But John is now showing systematically, though this is all one event, but John is systematically showing the defeat of these enemies, the defeat of the harlot, then in chapter 19, the defeat of the beast, and now in chapter 20, the defeat of the dragon himself, the defeat of Satan. And then, as a little add-on, last of all and greatest of all, the defeat of the last enemy, as Paul says, namely death. The immediate context of chapter 20 is Satan has been bound, and he's bound for a thousand years. I don't have time to make the argument. We can discuss it later. But as I said in my sermons, I believe that this 1,000 years is the time that we are in currently. That the 1,000 years represents, in John's vision, I can make this case later, uh, the, the whole age of the church. One th again, all numbers in Revelation are true, but they're symbolic. The 1,000 means long but finite. And the 1,000 years, I believe, is this time between Christ's first resurrection, uh, his death and resurrection, and his second coming. And during this time, Satan has been bound. It does not mean that he's not active. It just means that he can no longer deceive the nations. That's what Mark read. He is bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Jesus said in his earthly ministry, unless, the, unless I come and bind the strong man, I cannot plunder his house. But what Jesus is doing is he's coming so that the strong man, Satan himself, may be bound, and then Jesus can go plunder his house. And view what's happening now. World evangelism is essentially the plundering of Satan's house. The whole Old Testament, Satan bound the nations. The nations were deceived. God's people were primarily Israel. <clears throat> but in Christ, Satan is bound, his head crushed. He's still like a lion seeking whom he may devour. He's still dangerous but he is not able to deceive the nations any longer. And the gospel is going out in mass to the nations, and all the nations, people from all nations, are gathering into the church. So during this time, that's what's happening. In our vision, we have that, but we also have the end of that, that the time is going to come where Satan will be released, we're told, and allowed once again to deceive the nations. Here we are at the very end. We don't know for how long of a time this will be, but at the end, Satan will be allowed by God's sovereign permission to deceive the nations and in deceiving them, gathering them in mighty hostility against the people of God. And this brings us to the great climactic end, which is often called the Battle of Armageddon, <clears throat> right, to the great climactic end. And what we get in our text, though, I, though the, uh, I say 11 through 15, but really we're looking at uh, 7 through 15, because what we have here is the crushing of Satan, as, as Mark read it for us. He's released in verse 8. He gathers the nations, which are from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now, Gog and Magog and this language of the four corners of the earth, this is all from Ezekiel 38. Right? It's not some mysterious thing. He's just drawing on a vision. He's saying, yeah, you remember, remember how it was back in Ezekiel? Yep, going to be like that again. Okay, so just drawing on, on Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel 38. Uh, he's going to gather them from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up from the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. Very, that's all Ezekiel 38. Very much Ezekiel 38 language. But God says, 
there, the dragon will amass his host, and these people from all the nations of the earth that will make war on the saints, and it's a mighty thing. And when I preached this, I used the image of like that great last battle in Lord of the Rings. You know, when when the armies are coming and the saints are there, and the, you know, the, 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 they're encamped the, uh, and in the castle. And here comes this horde, like locusts, marching over the face of the earth to the, to the great and final battle. That's the image you get. But what's different, what's different about this ending compared to the Lord of the Rings ending, and I'm not criticizing Tolkien. Tolkien is, he's just telling his own story about this connection. But what's different is that the, the battle, in this case, is over before it begins. In, in Tolkien's version, right, it, it's like, we're losing, we're losing, we're losing. Oh no, we're losing. Oh no, we're winning. You know, and it's it, you feel the drama of that. The armies are coming in, the walls are breaking down, it's all falling apart. But in the end, we win. Not so here. Not so here. They go up on the breadth of the earth, and they're surrounded by the camp of the saints. They surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city. And then notice, then fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. There's no, there's the the great battle is not so great after all. Right? It's not this mighty, awesome conflict of just powers going back. Two heavyweights like boxing it out and wait, you know, Drago's winning. No, wait, no, Rocky's winning. Hey, wait, no, Drago's winning. No, Rocky's coming back. You know, it's not that. It's here comes this mighty army. <laughs> Done. It's over. You know, like God just, <laughs> it's over. And it, it's so important. I tell my students this, you know, when we're studying whatever things we're studying, is that we have to be very careful never to make Satan God's rival, as if somehow, right, there's this cosmic battle of good and evil. Never. Not anything near that. Whatever power Satan has, he has within the hand of God. And when God says it's over, fire comes down and is done. Whatever God, Jerry was commenting, we were joking a little bit. Weird to joke about Job, but we were joking about Jerry more than we were joking about Job. But whatever happened to Job happened by God's permission. You'll remember that. It's a very graphic scene there when Satan comes and says, hey, what about Job? And God says, okay. Now, that makes us quiver. We go, hey, wait a second. You know, is this conversation happening about me right now in heaven? Is something like, what is God? God just letting Satan do stuff to his saints? Like, what's that about? Okay, a lot of really interesting, good questions to ask there. But what's important here is the principle. Satan has no authority to do this thing. Right? Satan, Satan can amass everybody he wants to, but there's no rivalry here. Right? The, the, the great last battle is not really that great after all. Fire comes down as a foretaste of the lake of fire, and it's over. The, the, the thing is done. The dragon leads his hosts to this climactic battle, and boom, it's over before it begins. <clears throat> Satan is defeated. Fire comes out of heaven and devours them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet, right, this unholy trinity, uh, will, uh, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here we have the victory of Christ portrayed graphically in this vision, portrayed for us the victory that was wrought on the cross as Satan's head is crushed, Right? Je what did we just read in 1 John 3? Jesus came that he might destroy the works of the devil. The head of Satan is crushed on the cross, but he's still like writhing around like a snake whose head has been crushed, and he's wanting to do damage. He knows his time is short, Revelation says in Revelation 12, and he's writhing around, and now we see at the end, 
the end of the 1,000 years, Satan is taken and thrown into the lake of fire. He himself is judged for all eternity. Again, breaking a myth, by the way, that Satan lives in hell and that hell's sort of his domain and he torments people. John shatters that vision. No, not so. Not so. Hell is the place Satan is cast into where he, along with all who have the mark of the beast, along with all who follow him, are tormented. Hell is not Satan's abode. Hell is God's judgment upon the wicked, Satan chief among them. So the first glorious image we get here, again, in the climactic now work of Christ, that the consummation, the bringing to fulfillment of what we saw on the cross singularly in Christ, his death and resurrection, now at the end, we're allowed to see behind the veil what is awaiting us, the final victory, Satan, the beast, the seductress, the harlot, thrown into the lake of fire. Now, verse 11, then... I saw a great white throne. Now, had we been reading Revelation, have, had we heard Revelation read the way that the original churches had heard it, the way that Revelation would have initially been delivered was a guy shows up with this letter. It was to go to seven churches, like in a circuit. And they would show up and read it. Revelation is meant to be heard because it's so visu visual. Not that they wouldn't read other letters. They would but Revelation, really, because it's so graphic. It's meant to be seen in your head. Not as a photograph, but as images to help me see. So when I open my eyes and look back at reality, again, I don't see a bedraggled people. I see a, a wonderful, beautiful bride, a holy army. That's what I should see when I see you, because I see it in my head because of Revelation. Had we heard it, had I just read Revelation in one sitting, like they would have had it, this would have struck you because... When the vision begins in Revelation 4, right, the first three letters are God's address to John and then to the churches, but in, in, in chapter 4, the vision begins. And when it begins, John is ushered into heaven, right, in this vision. He's allowed to come up here. The doors open. He goes in, and the first thing he sees is a throne. And the vision, if you will, begins and ends with a throne. The throne bookends this whole vision, which is bone-chilling at some times. Look, the beast is going to do very, very bad things to the church, and God is going to allow it. Go listen to the sermon. There are some really, really tough things. The saints are crying out. Don't forget, the martyrs are crying out in heaven, oh God, how long, how long, oh Lord, until you vindicate us? I mean, they're suffering. The, the, the book of Revelation is a hard book. But that hard vision of the Christian life and the kingdom is bookended by a throne. God is sovereign in the beginning. He's sovereign at the end, which means he's sovereign through and through. Really important for us to remember because this is what awaits us, but here we are in the middle of it. I got problems to deal with today. I got headaches to deal with today. I got death hanging over my head every day, as do you. I mean, we've got to deal with that right now. We've got the hostility. You talk about uh, uh, the hostility, which uh, uh, hostile toward the gospel. Uh, Cheryl, Cheryl. Um, that kind of hostility, what, what, what interests me about that, about Cheryl, is like, okay, she's hostile toward the gospel. It's really what is down at the heart of every human being who's not a Christian. It's just that they cloak it 
in either uh, not I'm not interested, so I don't think about it. But if I pushed a little bit, I'd find the sore spot pretty quickly. And every non-believer would get there, would have that hostility. What I would appreciate about this woman is the honesty. Like, okay, boom, you're honest. We can talk. You hate Jesus? Good, we could talk because you're 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 where every every non-believer ultimately it is. It's just we cloak it in some Americana or we cloak it in disinterest or we cloak it in whatever. But there's reality. Okay, we can talk. We can talk. Um, <clears throat> that's what's underneath it, and we got to deal with that. And here, toward the end, the Bible's saying pretty clearly, like it will become big, something on a global level. We're going to have to deal with at, uh, toward the end, whether we're in that generation or not. It's something the church has to deal with. But as we do so, we know that it is covered by the throne. The sovereign beginning, and I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, and everything, therefore, in between. So he sees a great, great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose, face, uh, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Right? Even all creation in the presence of the awesome God, the one true God, heaven and earth, poof, flee away. The old order, this corrupt order, which must put on incorruption, this moral order, which must put on immortality, cannot stand in his presence. <coughs> Gone. Next chapter, we'll see it come back redressed. In chapter 21, we're going to see a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to come back, but it's going to come back renewed. Behold, he says, I make all things new. So incorruption, death, decay, this reality that's groaning, Paul says, for the day of redemption in his presence, gone. Exit stage left, but only to return again, blessed and renewed in, in the next chapter. So uh, this awesome vision of his holiness. And then verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened. So see, again, vision. Vision, we got a stack of books over here. He says, and they were all open because now we're, we're coming to judgment. And over here is a singular book. Here we got a group of books. And over here we got a singular book. And they're all open. And I saw the dead, both small and great. That means everybody standing before God. We're going to stand before him. And the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works. Here we have the resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection of all human beings. Every human being participates in this resurrection, the resurrection of the body. The sea gives up its dead, both small and great. Death and Hades, that is the land, the earth, the graves, give up their dead. Everyone will be ri uh, uh, raised physically, bodily, reconstituted, and standing before God in judgment. The Bible calls this the second <laughs> resurrection. And this will take some time in Sunday school. I'm sure we'll have a question on this. Because if you go back into the very beginning of the text uh, that was read, uh, where were we talking about first resurrection? Um, in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls. Notice no bodies. This is before. This is before the, the resurrection of the body. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Remember, this is during the thousand years, um, this time that we're in now. 
uh, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, that is, during the whole period of time. The dead in Christ are seated with him in the heavenly places and reigning with him. That's the image. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years. So those who die not in Christ do not participate in that, obviously, uh, until that time was finished. This is the first resurrection. Then he throws this in there. Um, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, that is the dead in Christ. Over such, the second death has no power. So he's like, John's throwing curveballs at us. He's like, we've got, we got two resurrections, we've got two deaths. You get one, you don't get the other. And the image John is saying is that for Christians, this is how awesome it is to be a Christian, that even your death is like resurrection. Okay, When you die, your body does go into the grave. True, it will be raised in the second resurrection. But your soul goes to be with the Lord, and you sit on a throne, and you reign with him. So that even your death is like resurrection. You know what John says? We'll call it the first resurrection. Even though it's not technical resurrection, your body's in the grave, but you have gone to be with the Lord. Non-believers don't participate in the first resurrection. Only believers. For you to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain, because even death to me is resurrection. So we, in Christ, participate in the first resurrection. The dead who are not in Christ do not. Then, when all are raised, we also participate in the second resurrection. Now our bodies are raised to be with him forever. So we all die once, and we are all raised once. But those who are in Christ are raised twice, if you will. We're raised spiritually, and then we're raised physically. And those who are not in Christ die twice. You're either raised twice or you die twice. And John calls eternal death the second death. All who participate in the first resurrection will not taste the second death. But those who are not in Christ will taste the second death. And the second death is eternal. It's eternal and that's the little back and forth. We can discuss that in Sunday school, but I want you to feel that image. So here we have now the final judgment where those who are experienced the first resurrection are now bodily raised, and we stand before the Lord, and those who did not experience the first resurrection but remained in death are now raised, and everybody stands before the Lord, and now we have final judgment. And notice that this judgment is according to books. Books are opened, and there's two different books. One a set and one a singular. The set of books we're told are the books of our lives. And we will have to give an account for what is in those books. This is troubling. Right? But it's a reality. Your life is recorded. Nothing we have done to, to the most seemingly insignificant, to the most significant has not been noticed. What is done, what the Lord sees in private, he will reward openly, one way or the other. But it's in that book. And it's going to be opened, and you and I are going to have to give an account. And it says very clearly, we, twice here, we will be judged, each one according to his works. You will be judged according to what is in those books. But there's another book. And the other book, we're told, is the book of life elsewhere called the Lamb's Book. 
And listed in that book are those for whom Christ died. Listed in that book are the members of his church and of his people, that army of 144,000. Again, numbers are symbolic. 12 times 12, perfect square times 1,000, a whole bunch. It's a big group, but a finite group, but a perfect group, not one lost. Their names are in that book. And your salvation before God depends on whether your name is in that book. But I can tell you this. If your name is in that book, if your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, then the things in this book will be evidence that confirm it. If your name is in that book, then when we open these books, there's going to be all kinds of bad stuff to account for. We know that. We've just confessed a bunch of it right, in our own lives. We know there's a lot to account for and a lot that I'm going to be ashamed of in this book. But there will also be fruit in this book that confirms my name in that book. Right? There will be fruit of the Spirit. There will be signs of life. There will be evidence of works of obedience that are the gift of the Spirit, no doubt. He's working in me to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But there will be evidence here. Our lives will be put through the fire. And if all we have is wood, hay, and stubble, and nothing comes out the other side, we're in trouble. Not because we didn't work hard enough, but because it's evidence that, in fact, we were never truly united to the vine. Because if we're united to the vine, the branch that's united to the vine bears fruit. In this case, precious metals. And when our life gets put through the fire and the wood, hay, and stubble gets burned up and out the other side comes precious metals, it will not be a testimony to how great Bill Spanger is. And wow, Bill, you really did earn it when others didn't. No, what it will be evidence of is the fact that, Bill Spanger, you indeed had the gift of faith by which you were united to Jesus Christ so that he bore fruit in you. But we will be judged according to our works. Our works will either condemn us, they will not justify us, but they will be evidence of our justification. This is the whole point James makes in James chapter 2. If you need to read that, go read that. Where he says, you say you have faith? Show me, I will show you my faith by my works. Well, faith without works is dead. It's not true. So if you say you have faith, but when we open the books and there's no fruit in there, there's no works, it will in fact condemn you. It will condemn you. So we need to examine our hearts, which we did today. I, I have no doubt that we're already examining our hearts because we came in confession. But we should ask, is there fruit in my life? If we're concerned about that, it doesn't mean, hey, start working really hard. What it does mean is go to the Lord and pray and repent. Call upon him. He's the only one that can give the life that bears fruit. You can't manufacture this fruit. You know, it, it, it takes a tree planted by streams of living water, gifted by God. God brings the fruit. I can't make an apple tree. I can, I can cultivate. I can prune. I can do stuff like that. But I, God's got to give the fruit, and he's going to do it if, in fact, we're united to the vine. Are you united to the vine? If I don't see the works, it's not work harder. It's get united to the vine. He will bear fruit in you. The sea gave up the dead and those who were in it. And death and Hades were delivered, uh, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged according to their works. And then just what I think is one of the most awesome, refreshing verses in the Bible, verse 14. Then, this is it. This is the end. This is going to be an all. When this happens... It is just going to be pure, in my mind, pure, unadulterated exhilaration. Then death and Hades, the place of death, were cast into the lake of fire. 
Brothers and sisters, when you and I watch God cast death itself, whatever that means, into the lake of fire so it is no more, it no longer has any effect on us, what an awesome day that is going to be. This is the second death. And anyone who was not found written in the book of life. See, here's where John does something very helpful for us. Because he just told us twice, you're going to be judged according to your works. But then when it comes down to the decisive thing, it's was your name in the book of life. Your name, you don't earn your way into that book. That is pure grace. And if your name is there, it will bear fruit, but you don't earn. It's not, this doesn't get you here. This book lets you bear fruit here. You've got to keep that order right. So that anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the picture that we get. This is, this is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ now brought to its consummation. This is what awaits us because of what he accomplished at Golgotha and there on Easter Sunday. This is what awaits us and what should inform us now. It is this reality that should just relativize our deepest pains and our greatest joys. This is what should fill our hearts with joy. This is what we should long for so that we cry out like John does at the end of this book, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for the day where we get to see death thrown into the lake of fire with Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. May this be your hope and your comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great vision. It's challenging. Sometimes it makes us scratch our heads. We try to figure out what the images mean, but here they're quite clear. And they're both intimidating and challenging, for we see everyone standing before the, the idea of standing before your pure, holy gaze, holding us accountable for every idle word, thought, and action, not to mention the significant ones. Father, it is intimidating. It's troubling. Let us not flee quickly from the the bone-shivering reality of that. But at the same time, Father, how we take comfort in knowing that there's another book, the Lamb's book, a list of names of those covered by the blood of Jesus. For we confess him today and are confident by your grace that our names are in that book. And we thank you that our salvation and our deliverance from that great throne, that great white throne of judgment does not in the end depend upon our endurance, our obedience, our excellence, our hard work, or virtue, but solely upon Christ and his forgiveness and his grace and his righteousness. How we thank you for that. And how we long for the day when we will see death itself thrown into the lake of fire so that sorrow and sighing flee away and you will wipe from our eyes every tear. While we long for that day, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.